Welcome to Grow With Soul, a simple marketing podcast by me, Kate Ferris, a creative business and marketing coach living in the mountains in North Wales. Grow With Soul is for creatives who either have their own business or who dream of having their own business and who want to grow slowly, sustainably and soulfully in their work and in their life. So welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Grow With Soul. Today I'm answering your questions that you submitted via Instagram stories last week, so thank you to everybody who did so. In fact, you actually submitted more questions than I could answer in one episode, so I have split them into a double header. So next month I will be answering your strategy and content questions, but this week we're talking about productivity, motivation, habit setting, work-life balance, and I'm also throwing in a couple of questions about creating and selling online courses for good measure too. So let's dig in. First question is, how can I get into a writing habit slash write faster slash write when I'm just not in the mood? And I recently published a blog post called Getting Into a Focused Mindset for a Productive Day, which was the results of my experiments around this very issue because I get it. I think we all have days where we plan to batch some blog posts or write something for a course or whatever it is that we were going to write and then we wake up and it's just the very last thing that we want to do. So firstly, I think we need to be okay with accepting when it's a lost cause. Sometimes it's just not going to be the day to do writing or creative work and rather than chain ourselves to our desks and be miserable all day and ultimately produce something in like twice as much time that isn't really our best work. We need to get comfortable with saying, okay, change of plan for today. The admin I was going to do in two days time, I'm going to do today. And then the writing, I'm going to leave for a day where I can get myself ready to do it. So otherwise, pre-preparation is really key both physically in terms of maybe writing out an outline and setting up your desk the day before so that when you sit down the next morning, you can just get straight into it. You've got your plan there. You've got your outline that you just need to start filling in. So you're not kind of faffing about and trying to work out where to start. So preparing physically, but also mentally. The night before I know I have a big chunk of writing to do, I get myself excited about it because otherwise it can feel really daunting and you start to get the little feelings of dread coming in. So I tell myself how lovely it's going to be to have a whole day to work on this project or and how this is exactly the kind of day that I started my business for. This is what I wanted more of. And you know what, maybe what treats I'm going to have when I hit certain word counts or, you know, what little cakes I've got in to see me through the day and just generally pep myself up and just get excited about the prospect of digging into this writing the next day. So doing this at night I find means that generally I wake up pretty ready and raring to go and still excited about the prospect of this project. So in terms of writing faster and getting into a writing habit I think the two really kind of inform each other. So the more that you write the faster you get. Um, So it takes me about 40 to 60 minutes to write a blog post, but that's because in one guise or another, I've been writing a weekly blog post for about six years. So 
with this blog, yes, but also I used to do company blogs in the two jobs that I had beforehand. And so, of course, the faster you do it, the easier it is for it to become a habit because it just slots easier into your week. It's not like, oh, I've got to set aside a whole half a day to do this. It can kind of just slot in in the morning. So my advice is to set your expectations low and then build them up. It's exactly like with exercise where you you kind of keep the repetitions and the weight low at first. And then as the muscles get stronger, you start to build it up. So if you want to start a writing habit, but you set out to complete a blog post every single day, you'll just crush yourself. So work at a realistic level that will help the habit to form and then start to up it. Okay, the next question is, how do you get through procrastination? And I think with this one, it's really knowing what you need to be motivated, accepting that and giving yourself what you need. So for example, as much as I would truly love to be the person that gets things done ahead of time in a lovely smooth workflow, I am the person that doesn't properly start until I start to feel the heat and the panic of the impending deadline. So Every attempt I've made to be the former has failed because, you know, shockingly, I am not that person and, you know, these drivers don't change. So rather than fight against it, I do what I can to give myself what I need to get going. So for example, most recently, I was completing all the content for the playbook course and, you know, obviously putting things off because it didn't feel urgent yet. So what I had was a designer creating elements for me. So I used her as some accountability to be a deadline before the actual deadline so that I could get everything done to send her a week before the real deadline. Other ways I've done this have been to set a date when something goes on sale or starts and talk about it publicly or even take pre-orders so the work really genuinely has to be done by that deadline. Other times, exactly as in my previous answer, I stymie the procrastination by drawing a line in the sand and saying, okay, enough now. This is what I wanted to be doing every day. So tomorrow I'm going to really embrace it. I also find that self-bribery works really well. So if I complete a project or just get through my weekly to-dos, I give myself a little treat and I'll write down in my planner what that treat is going to be. So it's kind of there reminding me and I can work towards it. And your treats include things like buying a new candle or going and having a cake or treating myself to lunch at the weekend. Um, So it's little small things, but that's enough just to kind of get me excited and give me another reason to to do the work. Sometimes as well, I can find that I procrastinate because I'm excited about another idea. So what I'll do is spend a little bit of time working on that other idea, both to kind of scratch the itch and get it out of my head. (laughs) Um, Because you know what it's like when you've got this idea and it's like, you can't get rid of it. But also to get back into the rhythm of working on something excitedly because there's been a block there. And so if I can use this new idea as an in to get back to the work I'm supposed to be doing, I'll do that. So obviously there is not one answer to this. And, you know, if there was, I'd be a rich woman. But the key thing is to know how you work so you can work with yourself. If you haven't already done it, Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies quiz is free and it's also great kind of in to start to get to know yourself and how you're motivated. So do that, work it out and then give yourself what you need and be more carrot than stick. By which I mean we tend to kind of beat ourselves up and when we're procrastinating we think 
that we're awful and we're lazy and we need to get on with it and you know just be a nice boss to yourself give yourself a treat when you do it reward yourself and it's going to be a much nicer experience all round and you will actually get stuff done rather than just get into a spiral of hating yourself Okay, so the next question is how to keep up motivation through being a startup. So this is really tough because when you're starting out, it's easy to feel that nothing you do is landing, you're putting stuff out and getting nothing back and it can just really feel like you're talking into a brick wall and that just immediately saps all your energy and all your motivation. So when I started my business, I had three months of no one even inquiring about working with me. And in those months, I remember that I threw myself into producing content. I was posting and engaging on Instagram every day. I think at one point I was blogging twice a week. I was making email opt-ins and I was generally just doing my best to be as visible as possible through content. Directing my energy in this way did a few things. Firstly, it kept me distracted from the fact that my inbox was empty because I was busy, I was doing stuff. It kept up momentum because I was giving myself publishing deadlines and and moving through things. It allowed me to develop what I stand for and what I do through working it all out in the content. And it kept me out there in public rather than withdrawing and working on things behind the scenes and, and worrying about nobody getting in touch. So that's what worked for me was producing content over and over and over and just letting that all build up and distract myself from those horrible early months. But what I do also say, having just called them horrible early months, do try to enjoy this time because you'll never get it back. Once momentum starts to pick up, you won't ever have days where you've got no emails to answer or problems to deal with or appointments to keep. So really relish this period where you have permission to create all day long and you've got the space and the freedom to do what you want. So yeah, try to enjoy it and keep yourself productive and distracted through things like content. Okay, so the next question is how do you do self-care when you have pressing deadlines every day? So with this one, there are a couple of things that I want to challenge. So first of all, the deadlines. Do you really have pressing deadlines every day or is it more that you feel the weight of them really acutely and you worry about them a lot? Or maybe possibly that you haven't got yourself into a good workflow so that some inefficiencies mean that the deadlines start to really suddenly pile up. So make sure that you're always dealing with the truth in these scenarios because that's the only way to really solve the problem. So I do this too. I have weeks where I'm like, there's just not enough time. I have too much on my plate. And then I realise that if I just got up a bit earlier and I didn't leave things to the last minute, then I wouldn't be feeling like this. So think about whether this is more of a mindset thing you need to focus on or maybe if it's a workflow issue that you can find a solution for, but make sure you're dealing with the actual real problem. If you really do have pressing deadlines every day, then I'd look at how you can reduce the jobs or the clients that you're taking on so you can ease that pressure. Maybe that's raising your prices so you can do less work for the same or more amount of money. Maybe it's just literally cutting something out and taking the hit because the fact that you're asking this question shows that the work is making you really unhappy and stopping you from getting your basic needs met. So, what's the point in having that that work? 
there will always be another way. You're just so busy right now that you can't imagine it, but there is always another way on the other side. Okay, so I also just want to check in about what you mean by self-care because the term self-care always makes me bristle because to me the concept has kind of been commodified and it's just another way to make us feel like we're not failing or living up to this ideal standard of what we should be doing. So here I would make sure you're really clear on what you're seeking. Is it a feeling that you should be doing self-care which looks a certain way and needs a certain amount of time per week based on what other people say or is there something specific that you want to be able to do that you're not currently? So focus on the latter, on the actual thing you want to do for yourself rather than the abstract concept and you might find it easier to bring in than you think. So maybe it's a little walk in the mornings, perhaps it's writing down a daily intention, maybe tracking your energy every day, having a bath every evening where you can do some reading. I actually realised when I was writing this down that accidentally I just wrote down all the things that I do for myself every day even though I don't think of them as self-care that's like they're just the parts of my routine that I have for myself and you know what aside from the bath they take up a combined maybe half an hour if that every day of my day so think about what the activities you want to do are and you'll likely find that some of them can slot into five minute windows. So my daily intentions, I think about while I'm brushing my teeth. So that's actually not any extra time. The dog walk is like maybe 15 minutes down the the lane and back. Tracking my energy. I have like a worksheet that I, well, not I have one. I've used somebody else's worksheet. Actually, I'll I'll tell you what it is. It's, uh, you get it free when you buy Kate Northrop's book, Do Less. So it's her daily energy tracker, which I've been doing for the last month and that takes me like five ten minutes a day so they're all really important things in my day that I do for myself and actually when I think about them I feel like they take up more space and time than they actually do just because they're real kind of strong bookends in my day so the next question is have you ever done a coaching course or are you self-taught So no, I've never done a coaching course. I know that there are some people online who are pretty vocal that anyone who has never done a coaching course is a fraud, but for me, that's just simply too reductive. The point of hiring someone to help you with a specific problem is so that they can help you with that specific problem. So you want to hire the person who can best do that. For some people where their problem is perhaps something more kind of on the medical side or psychological or it's like a really ingrained sort of trauma-based habit, the person best placed to help will be someone with more training. Although I'd probably argue that most of these are probably better solved by a counsellor or a therapist than a coach. But you know, if your problem is that you want to find a way to grow your business sustainably, the best person to help you is someone who knows how to do that and has insight and experience around that that's kind of irrelevant to coach training. So another important point I think is that coaching is a two-way street. The client has to bring 50% of the work and the energy and the input to get the results that they desire. They need to be able to talk honestly and ask the questions that they're really struggling with and feel comfortable sharing themselves vulnerably in the in-progress version of themselves. So therefore, the best coach for them is the one that they feel safe with and that they can open up to. Someone might have 
all the training in the world, but if you're slightly terrified of them or you don't quite trust that you won't end up the subject of one of their Instagram posts, or maybe on the other side, you just respect them too much to share your struggles, then they're not the best coach for you. You need to work with someone who you can feel comfortable talking about your problem with. I know that a lot of people can feel almost sort of threatened into submission and that they're not allowed to start a coaching business because they don't have the piece of paper, the coaching qualification, which by the way, costs several thousands of pounds to get, which is, you know, a very problematic barrier to entry. So I say, if you know you can help people, that's all that matters. You shouldn't be made to feel guilty or like a fraud for wanting to help people and improve someone's life. If it's your life's work, just go for it. Next question is, do you have any specific tips for streamlining marketing when working in two languages? So clearly I don't have any personal insight into this because I am not worldly or sophisticated enough to have this problem. Uh, But clearly dealing with two languages will add significantly to your workload because you're doubling up on everything. So my advice would be to think critically about where the two languages are actually required and where just one will do. So for example, perhaps in your native country, you know, Instagram isn't so much of a thing, so you can afford to only post in English on that channel. And maybe your native language users are much more on Facebook, so you can post just in that language there and not include the English. Similarly, perhaps if you're writing blog posts, you can have some which you direct just to your native audience, which perhaps references things that they would only understand anyway, and then do some more general ones in English. Another thing to think about is opportunities for non-verbal marketing, where you can show something rather than having to talk about it. So that might be illustrations, diagrams, charts, or even videos of you demonstrating a process. So I think we've probably all seen examples of those kind of viral cooking videos where it's like, the hand and the bowls. (laughs) So one's like that, but for your work, you don't need to have any language there. You can just make one and and it works for both languages. But ultimately, you may want to think about getting to a point where you can outsource some translation if you feel that you're spending more time sorting out your languages than doing the work that you're best at. Okay, so the next question how do you handle people not understanding what it is you do or even worse people not seeing it as a proper job so there are two types of people inverted commas people we could be referring to here if the people are your ideal clients or customers then what you have is a marketing challenge so to use your sales pages and your content to simplify what you do and explain it in a way that's understandable However, from the tone of this question, I assume that we're talking about the other type of people who are not your target customer and probably are people in your real life. When I first handed in my notice at my old job and told my family what I was doing, there was a lot of confusion. So no one in my family had ever done anything like this. We just weren't people who took risks. We were all employees and we stayed in our jobs and the idea as well on top of that that it was all online and to do with social media just didn't help because they couldn't get their heads around how it would work because it was just so far removed from 
their sphere of influence or experience. So I remember as well at the time, my cousin had sort of looked up my Instagram and, and said, you know, it's very nice, but how do you make money out of this? <laughs> so when someone doesn't understand what you do, it's because of the, their lack of vision, not the legitimacy of what you do. They don't know how they'd be able to do it. So they assume that you won't either or it's not a proper job because they've never seen anything like it. The example I've used before is when you have someone, you talk about what you want to do and, you know, like Ian from accounts thinks or says, oh, that seems a bit difficult. How are you ever going to do that? And that's because he's thinking about him trying to do it rather than you with all your all the stuff you've been doing towards it already. Like you're already a lot further along than Ian is to getting there. So yeah, it's unlikely that you'll be able to change their mind. Not until you have some of those kind of traditional markers of success to go by. So for me, it's been three years. So my family kind of get that I must be somehow making money and that it's all fine. But please... Don't waste your energy on trying to change their minds because that energy is so much better spent on the people who will get it, who will buy from you and growing your own confidence that way through those people than trying to convince the people who are shut down. You also really need to protect your business from these people. If you worry about what they think, your business will suffer. Throw like a metaphorical blanket over yourselves, you and your business, and focus on building up the strength of your business without the influence from the outside world. So personally, I had to do this by just refusing to talk about my business with my family. So even now, I still don't really, other than kind of like basic bits of information. And at the beginning, I would just say, you know, everything's fine, and then just close down the conversation. Because I knew there was nothing I could say to make them understand and that no good would come of allowing them in. That it wasn't good for me to have to justify the business to people who weren't ever going to get it. It, That just would cause doubt for me. I had to be selfish because right at the beginning I wasn't even really sure if it would work but I had to just believe that it would and I couldn't let that doubt in. The place that we have to get to is where it doesn't matter if someone does see it as a proper job or not because you're making money, you're feeding your kids, you're paying for a holiday and you see it as a proper job. Okay, so I'm just going to transition into a couple of last questions which were all about course creation. So I sort of thought I'd stick them in at the end here. So the first one is, what trend do you typically expect for selling online courses in terms of pre-order numbers versus last minute orders? And this is interesting because I've only recently started experimenting with pre-order signups for my courses. So let me explain a little bit about how I usually launch courses and then I'll kind of add in the pre-order detail. So generally when I launch a course, I'll do a couple of weeks of pre-launch where I set the scene for the topic through my content. So if it's my campfire content course, I'll start publishing more stuff about content marketing as well as starting to let people know that the course is coming. So if it's something they're interested in, they can start that consideration process. So because of that pre-launch period, I tend to get an early rush of signups of people who'd already been thinking about it and definitely wanted to buy it. And then for the remainder of the launch period, the sales really just trickle in and then the majority come right at the end when the cart is closing because 
people have been thinking about it and think they've got plenty of time and then realize they don't have plenty of time anymore. You know, we've all been there. And actually, I usually let a couple of people in during the first week who really left it too late as well. So percentage wise, I'd say this probably works out at 25 to 30% of sales happening at the start of the launch, 5% coming through the middle and then 65 to 70% coming at the end. I actually did an online workshop last year and three days before I had five people signed up and then I ended up with 65 in total. So, I mean, I can't mark out percentages off the top of my head, but that's got to be like 90% right at the end. I think it's important to note this as well, actually, because we've all heard the stories of runaway successes where people put something up for sale and then they go and have lunch and come back and they've made like 40k. And when that doesn't happen to us, we think we failed and we like take our course or product off sale. Whereas the majority of the time... People need longer to think about these things. They're weighing up options. They're waiting for payday. They're trying to convince themselves that they deserve it. So you've got to stay the course of your launch because those customers are depending on you to do so. Okay, so back to pre-orders. At the end of last year, I experimented with pre-orders for my playbook course. The reason for this was that I knew I was going to need a long time to create this course and make it what I wanted it to be but I also needed to plug a financial hole before it would be ready so I offered a pre-order package which included a discount and some bonuses for anybody who bought the course before December so in this instance I'd say 80 to 90 percent of the sales happened in the pre-order period and personally I think this is because People wanted the discount and the goodies, but also because it was a pretty specific course that was easy to say, oh yeah, that's what I need. But you know, if you're doing the playbook and it wasn't for these reasons, let me know. So in terms of trends, I don't think that the buying trends are going to change hugely because people are always going to be motivated by added extras and discounts in a pre-order, just as that always going to leave things to the last minute. However, I wouldn't be surprised if we started to see more pre-order launches going on. There are more and more courses and memberships launching and therefore there's more for people to commit their time and finances to. So I think a pre-order enables you to say, hey, this thing's coming in a few months so people can think that, oh, I want to commit to that and hold out for it rather than kind of commit to something the month before your launch and then they go oh well I can't do it now so I think this is partly what happened with the playbook too so it started in January which is a busy time for business launches but because most people had committed back in the autumn there was kind of less competition for me but also for them because they had decided the thing they were going to do and you know they'd paid for it three months before so if they wanted to do something else they they probably could have if you know depending on their circumstances. Okay, so the next question is, how do you go about creating an online course? (laughs) So this is a big question. I actually have a blog post, which I'll link to in the show notes, which is literally called My Course Creation Process, um, where I talk through how I do it. You know, there is, of course, no one way to create a course, you know, despite what some people would probably have you believe. But this is what I think. So you've got to have a way to help people with a specific problem. Specific is the key word here. It's hard to create an effective course that's general because there's too much room for questions and there's no way you could 
cover every single possibility within the course content. So for example, I couldn't create a how to market your business course because what a beginner needs to know is completely different to someone who's been doing it for five years. A coaching business has different questions to a product business and some people may not understand the content element as much and need more help with that, whereas for others it might be what they're best at. So you can't do a really, really general course because there's too much room for inconsistencies. So that's why my courses are broken down by topic, like Campfire, which is all about content, or by the type of business, like the playbook, which is for coaching businesses. So you also, I think, need to have a way that is uniquely yours that you can help them with that problem. So I don't mean that it has to be earth-shatteringly inventive and unique, just a reason that people would want you to help them with this as opposed to anyone else. So that might just be in the way that you communicate or in your different approach or in your format that might be a completely different way of explaining it to other people. So speaking of format, I know that probably most people do video lessons in their online courses, but I don't. This is because A, I don't have the tech know-how to do a good video lesson, nor is it the way that I feel I best express myself and explain what I mean. I'm probably at my worst in person than I am when I've got time to think it all out and write it out. Also, as a consumer, I hate video lessons and they actually tend to put me off buying a course. So it just feels out of alignment that I would do them. So my courses are written lessons with some images and diagrams and workbooks or exercises because that's how I best get the knowledge across and make sure that people can apply it. So when you're thinking about creating your own course, think about how you can best, you can best deliver that content. Don't think you have to do it this way or that way, do it in the way that gets your brilliance out there. Lastly, make a plan of what you need to cover. So think about where that student is now, where they need to get to, and the steps they need to get from one to the other, and use that as a red thread to build your content around. Map out how it will split into weeks or modules, but stay really focused on what they need to know. It can be tempting to add in more, whether you feel like you've got this extra knowledge and you just want to stick it in or you think it's, it's not enough and you need to add more and more. Too much superfluous information can cause overwhelm and confusion. So with a course, people don't have the same opportunity to chat everything through with you like they would if you were kind of sat across the table from them or working one-to-one. So your course content needs to be really clear and lead them through the journey and not cause them more questions. And then you just make it, (laughs) you write it, you record it, you draw it, you do whatever you're going to do, but you just start. Okay, and the last question, which leads on nicely from the previous one, is any tips for marketing online courses? So marketing a course is generally no different from marketing any other product because obviously it is a product. The same principles remain of demonstrating that you understand your customer and what they're struggling with, 
showing how you can help them get to where they want to be, helping them to see themselves reflected in your copy and using your marketing to answer any questions or doubts they might have about this being the right product for them. That's all true whether you're marketing a course, a one-to-one offering, something you've made, furniture, whatever it is you're selling. So to take it a layer deeper, let's think about what worries or doubts someone might have about a course generally. So they might be worried that it's not as good as it sounds because most of us have been burnt by a duff course once or twice. So therefore, in your marketing, perhaps you preview some of the content, you talk through a part of it, demonstrate how you use the learnings in your own life, share some case studies, give away a tiny section of it. Another thing people worry about with courses is the time commitment. So will they be able to keep up with it? So perhaps you put on the sales page about how much time per week you think people will need. When you talk about the community element, you say how good it is for accountability and keeping people going. If you've not got a community, then perhaps you build in some triggered emails to help keep them on track and use that to help assuage this doubt. Or even ask some trusted people what puts them off by a course and then look at ways you can overcome those through your content, your sales copy, and your social media. Okay, so that's the end of this Q&A episode. If you submitted a question last week and I've not answered it, please don't worry because I will be answering it in the strategy and content Q&A episode, which will come out next month. So for now, any links as always that I mentioned will be on my website, which is simpleandseason.com forward slash podcast. And you can find me on Instagram at simpleandseason. If you have a friend who you think would really love to listen to this episode, please do send them the link and share where you're listening online too. And until next time, I hope you grow a soul.